Well, it has been over a year since I have been able to stand in this pulpit, in this sanctuary, and preach to real human persons. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I was looking forward to that. Uh, before I get into today's sermon, I want to go ahead and dismiss uh, kids of Sprout's age to meet uh, Miss Teresa in the back there, and you'll go away for your own lesson time. And as the, the kids are being dismissed, I, you know, it does occur to me, I mean, there's, there's been a whole lot that's, uh, that's changed over this last year's worth of craziness. Uh, everything has been in absolute uh, upheaval, both uh, corporately, nationally, and, you know, of course, personally. Uh, for example, on, on one personal level, uh, right before everything sort of locked down, I had really been intent on, on working out and exercising, eating well, and uh, believe it or not, right before the lockdown started, I had lost about 20 to 25 pounds. Yeah, I mean, I was feeling really good, fit, my joints weren't bugging me, you know, it was, it was kind of nice. Um, and then it, it's interesting, um, in the last year uh, since lockdown has happened, um, there's been an interesting change, and that change is um, I've gained about 20 to 25 pounds. I don't know how it happened, but uh, it, there's something about being at home all the time that makes the Cheez-Its pop out more and, you know, and just easier to eat lots of them. So uh, anyhow, uh, today we're beginning a new series sort of inspired by the season we're in of Lent in which we're looking at the various stages of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you wanted to sort of do a, find a basic outline of what these stages are, you can think of the Apostles' Creed, where it says Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. There's basically five stages to, hum to his humiliation, at least in most Christian uh, traditions. And today we're going to be looking at the second of those five. We're going to be looking at Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. In other words, the time from which he, was, he started in the Garden of Gethsemane and was eventually led to uh, through false trials and then uh, condemned by uh, Pilate. So, so that's what we're going to be digging into today. But before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from God's Word from uh, both Luke 22, verses 39 through 44, and then we'll skip ahead to Luke 23, verses 11 through 25. So here's how Luke 22 reads. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now let's skip ahead to chapter 23, verse 11. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this day they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as, as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. 
look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. End of, end of reading. Father, I pray now that you would deliver your powerful word and what it is we need to hear from it by your spirit. Through my very imperfect and feeble lips, I ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but it is typically my preference to not suffer. Profound, I know. I've experienced it a little bit in my life to varying degrees, and, and yeah, I can say unequivocally, I don't like it. Not at all. I prefer comfort. I like for the heat to be set at just the right temperature. Not too hot, but not too drafty, not too cold. I like for when I get in the car, for the driver's seat to be adjusted absolutely perfect so that my legs hit the pedals at just the right spot without having to move forward or back. Something, by the way, that doesn't happen often after my wife has gotten done driving the car. But I like it. I like walking on smooth surfaces. None of these rough patches and hills and difficult terrain. Get that out of here. I think I'm not all that weird. So one of the things that's kind of striking about reading the accounts of Jesus' life is how often he willfully walks into situations in which he knows inevitably he will suffer. It happens all the time in the Gospels. And we know from what he tells his disciples that he can avoid it. I mean, what, what does he say when he's about to be arrested? I could have legions of angels come down and take care of y'all. I don't have to do this. I have the power. And yet he, he insists that suffering must be endured because it is central to his mission. So what I want to talk about today is, is what Jesus suffered, at least from our text, what we're shown he suffered. I want to talk about who is the cause of his suffering, and finally, why he endures the suffering he does. 
What does Jesus suffer? Well, if we were to do a whole survey of the gospel accounts of what Jesus goes through, you know, we would see all sorts of times where he's rejected or persecuted or hunted or has his life threatened by people. I mean, that's not uncommon. But specifically in our text today, you you see a highlighting of one word. It it happens in the Garden of Gethsemane at the very beginning, and it's where we're told that Jesus was in agony. That word, agony, is, it's the only time in the Greek that that word is used in the New Testament. And it conveys a meaning of terror, overwhelming distress. Now, the question we have to ask is why? Why would he be so distressed that he would do something that is, well, be brought to something that does happen, but is so medically rare that it's almost like it doesn't happen, that he sweats drops of blood? Well, it's everything that you're going to read about or that you would read about in the next couple chapters of Luke. You know the story. Jesus is arrested under false pretenses. He's subjected to a bunch of mock trials that aren't legal or have any real standing. He's convicted by a kangaroo court. He's mocked. Well, he's brought to Herod. And then he's eventually condemned by Pilate. What happens from there? He's spat on. As Isaiah prophesied, his beard is pulled out of his face. He is whipped so heinously with what was known as the cat of nine tails, a whip with nine ends on it with metal shards and glass and other things, ensuring that the back would be completely flayed open when it was done. He is, of course, eventually crucified with nails in each of his arms and through his legs. It's understandable if one were to meditate on that, that they would be overwhelmed with terror. And yet, I think it goes deeper than that. I think when we're told that Jesus is in agony, I think what we're meant to actually understand is he's in agony over what he will endure from the Father. Even though he's completely agreed to it, he's not an unwilling recipient, yet as he meditates on it, he still longs that there might be some other way that the mission can be accomplished because he knows for the first time in all eternity past that he will experience what it is to be forsaken. That the very wrath of God at all of humanity's sin is going to be absorbed by him. And I think that is what ultimately leads him to sweat drops of terrified blood. This is a very striking contrast, you know, what Jesus is presented as going through compared to other heroes from ancient accounts. Uh, Tim Keller points out that in Roman and Greek accounts of, of heroes dying, that there's almost a flippancy, there's a macho-ness to it. If you think about the account of Socrates being uh, killed by uh, poisoning through hemlock, uh, Socrates and his friends are shown as t- sort of tossing off ironic one-liners. Because, of course, that's what you want to present in the hero of the story. Somebody who, no matter what, is not going to give in. 
Same thing in Jewish accounts of heroic uh, deeds. If you look at First and Second Maccabees, a writing detailing some of the historical events that happened in the intertestamental period, you're going to see the heroes there. That they're, they're praising God with full-throated voices, loudly, even as they're being sliced to bits. But here, the hero is in agony desperately hoping there can be some other way of accomplishing the mission. The church father, Augustine, practically, poetically pictures the scene for us. Quote, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey. That truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. That's just a bit of what Jesus suffers. Which leads me to want to talk about who it is that we hold responsible for causing all this suffering. I think you all know, I'm not telling any tales out of school here, that there's been quite a bit of discussion over the last 2,000 years as to who should be held accountable. And for great periods of the church's history, there's been a heavy emphasis on, of course, the Jewish people. Because, of course, some of the Jewish religious establishment are very, very upfront about wanting Jesus gone. They're definitely threatened by him. And so, as a result, there has been at times in the church's history, well, let's just call it what it is, deep anti-Semitism that has led, even at the hands of the church, to persecution of the Jewish people. It's shameful. But this discussion has led there at times. On the other hand, of course, you can't discount the Roman authorities. I mean, it's not as if when, Herod is, uh, when Jesus is sent to Herod that Herod tries to free him. No, Herod sees him as sort of a sideshow. He's a circus act. He's somebody that he can maybe mock a little bit. He doesn't have any desire, doesn't care one way or the other. Sends him back to Pilate. And although Pilate does have reservations, we are shown that clearly in Scripture. In the final analysis, Pilate doesn't have the courage to do what needs to be done. And his cowardice leads him to condemn Jesus and hand him over to death. So, who's responsible? Well, let me submit to you that looking at the answer to the question through that lens is at best an adventure in missing the point. A great adventure in missing the point. Why do I say that? Well, because look at the way the authors of the New Testament talk about who is responsible for the crucifixion and death of Jesus, for the suffering of Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter gets up and preaches his magnificent sermon, who does he say is guilty? He says to a crowd of thousands of people, most of whom definitely were not there during the events of Jesus' crucifixion, you crucified him. A little later on in a prayer, 
He indicts all people. He says, Lord, it was, it was the people of Israel. It was the Gentiles. It was the Roman authorities. And he even goes further. Peter does, oh, the chutzpah of Peter in saying it was also ultimately your plan, God, that led to this. Yes, there will be various instruments through their wicked ways that will be used, but ultimately don't mistake it. You want to know who's responsible. It is all of humanity's sin and ultimately the plan of God to deal with that sin. If you wanted to figure out who's responsible, in other words, after the service here, if you'd like, you can step on into the handicapped restroom just down the hall, the one that's open, and you can flick on the light real quick. And as soon as you get in there, you're going to see a mirror. Stay there for a couple seconds, and you'll get your answer. The truth is, Jesus goes there for all of us, but never forget, because of all of us. It does us no good to try and point fingers at them or them or them. It's me. It was my sin that placed him there, the hymn says. And the New Testament agrees. Well, so we've seen what kinds of suffering Jesus goes through, and we've discussed who is responsible for the suffering. Let me get to the third point here, which is why it is he does suffer. And I'm sure if... You know, for most of you who have been in church uh, quite some time, you know the answer to this. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you anything new. I mean, me or Pastor Bruce, we're, in some way or another, no matter what the text is, you know that it, whatever zigzags we make, we're eventually getting there, right? I mean, you know it's getting there. It's just, that's just our, our MO. That's just the way we roll. So you know the answer. I mean, you, you know what's going on. But I, but I do think there is a beautiful example of why it is Jesus suffered in this very text. If you remember from what we read, as the crowd and the mob is, is stoking the desire of Pilate to condemn Jesus and to send him away to crucifixion, they also, at the same time, ask for a man to be released to them, a man by the name of Barabbas. Now, we're told about Barabbas that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. There is no reason at all that Pilate would ever usually grant their request, except this day is different. At some point in history, the Roman authorities in Jerusalem had made a deal with the people of Jerusalem, with the religious leadership, and they said, on Passover weekend, on one day, on Passover weekend, we will release a prisoner of your choosing as a show of good faith, as a sign of our willingness to partner with you. And so indeed, who do the people choose? An insurrectionist and a murderer. Very understandably, the people, the religious establishment of Israel, of Jerusalem, hated the Roman occupiers. They didn't want them to be there. And so really, it's almost a, a slap in Pilate's face to request somebody that is as boldly anti-Rome as that. Give us the guy who's actively fought against you. But a deal's a deal. And 
Pilate knows that he'll be in big, big trouble and that he'll have the mob after him even more. And so eventually he agrees to release Barabbas. Now, there's a very important point about this Barabbas character that I don't want you to overlook because I think it shows that this is not some just happenstance event. But no, the symbolism of this is indeed in the providence of God throughout it all. Indeed, it shows us what God is actually doing through his suffering. Because the name Barabbas literally means son of the father. Think about what is happening. Barabbas, the son of the father, who was guilty of insurrection and murder, who was clearly a bad guy, on this day is set free. Whereas the true son of the father, the utterly righteous Jesus, is condemned and crucified. You want to know why Jesus suffered? It's to reconcile sons and daughters of the Father that have strayed far away, that have rebelled against their home, that have rebelled against their Father, that have sought to live life independent of their Father. In other words, when we hear about Barabbas, what we're really hearing about is us. What we're really hearing about is people that have every reason to be condemned, every reason to be declared guilty, and every reason to be punished, being set free on account of Jesus Christ, the true and better Son of the Father, taking our punishment for us. The innocent for the guilty, so that the guilty would be forgiven. Well, let me, let me bring us right down to brass tacks and wrap up with a little illustration from one of my favorite movies. Um, some of you who are watching this might be dismayed that, yes, once again, I'm going to give away something in a movie. But it's old enough, so I get a pass. I get a pass. It's been out for a while, but it is a spoiler. One of my favorite, uh, I, I love uh, comic book movies, or at least most of them. I mean, even if they're bad ones, I'm probably going to go the first day that it comes out. It's just, I've always been interested in them. And probably my favorite series of comic book movies is the Batman trilogy that came out a few years back, or a little while ago now. Uh, and specifically, my favorite is The Dark Knight. Now, uh, The Dark Knight is, of course, uh, depicts Batman fighting his arch nemesis, the Joker. And really, the Joker's main goal in this story is to try to prove to the people of Gotham that there really is no such thing as a hero. There's no such thing as a good guy. That no matter what, everybody can be turned. Everybody can be turned evil. And by doing that, by showing that to the people of Gotham, Joker wants to create a great sense of disillusionment and cynicism and pain in the people of Gotham. He wants them to embrace chaos and to turn on each other. And to do that, he he centers his attention on one truly heroic man in the story, a man by the name of Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent is a good man in the public's eye. Everybody respects him. Everybody loves him. He's a prosecuting attorney that really does care about justice. So the Joker sets his sights on him, and sure enough, the Joker eventually is able to turn him. 
through a series of events and temptations, he's able to turn Dent, in fact, into a murderer. This, this just and good heroic man suddenly becomes monstrous in his actions, murdering five people, and, and eventually, eventually Dent, as a result of his sins, will die himself. And so you come to the end of the film, the end of the story, and you're left with this sort of crushing despair. If this gets out to the world, that the good guy turned evil, won't the Joker win? Won't the Joker win if Harvey Dent, the person that people had looked to to be the good man, had proved to Gotham that anybody could fall? Batman and Commissioner Jordan know, or Gordon know that this will snuff out the people of Gotham's hope. So what does Batman do? It's one of my favorite scenes, and I've always seen a picture of Jesus in it. Batman insists that before word can get out about all of Dent's crimes and all of Dent's evils, that instead the narrative that will be fed to the media and to the world is that he, the Batman, will take all responsibility for it. He will, the narrative will be that he murdered the people, that he did all of the evil. He will become the villain. No one besides Commissioner Gordon will know any better, thus making it seem as though Dent is clean. So from the closing scenes, we hear Batman say this, speaking to Commissioner Gordon, quote, I killed those people. That's what I can be. I'm whatever Gotham needs me to be. You will hunt me, you'll condemn me, sick the dogs on me, because that's what needs to happen. And at that moment, Batman runs away into the night. Now a villain in the public's eye, acting as the guilty party. And Gordon's little boy, having seen everything that just transpired, says, why is he running, Dad? And Gordon says, because we have to chase him. But he didn't do anything wrong. Yes, but he's the kind of hero we need. The kind of hero we need willingly sacrifices his reputation, his independence, his freedom, his life for those he loves. The kind of hero we need is one who, no matter how unjustly treated, submits his back to the whips, his arms to the cross, and his body to the grave, because he knows that all of that is necessary to have everlasting fellowship with you and I. He knows justice will not be satisfied with anything less. So that's what Jesus will endure. That's what he does for all of us Barabbases. That's who Jesus suffered for. He endures it all to save us. Father, I pray that as we've meditated just briefly on the suffering of your son, Jesus Christ, that this would inspire praise and thanksgiving to you. That you would be glorified through us as 
now people who have been sacrificed for seek to become people that look at our neighbors and sacrifice for them. Help us be, as it were, little Christs to those around us that they might see a reflection of your character and your love. And so, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior has given us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.